Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about type 1 diabetes. And you can find written notes on this topic at zerotofinals.com slash type 1 diabetes or in the endocrinology section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. So let's get straight into it. Type 1 diabetes is a condition where the pancreas stops being able to produce an adequate amount of insulin. Without insulin, the cells of the body cannot absorb glucose from the blood and use it as fuel. Therefore, the cells think that there's no glucose available. Meanwhile, the glucose level will keep rising, causing hyperglycemia or a high glucose level. The underlying cause of type 1 diabetes is unclear. There may be a genetic component, but it's not inherited in any clear pattern. Certain viruses, such as the Coxsackie B and Enterovirus, may trigger it. Type 1 diabetes may present with the classic triad of symptoms of hyperglycemia, which is polyuria, meaning excessive urine, polydipsia, which means excessive thirst, and weight loss, mainly due to dehydration. Alternatively, patients may present with diabetic ketoacidosis. Let's start with some basic physiology on glucose metabolism. Eating carbohydrates causes a rise in blood glucose levels as the carbohydrates are absorbed from the small intestine into the blood. As the body uses these carbohydrates for energy, there's a fall in the blood glucose level. The body ideally wants to keep blood glucose concentration between 4.4 and 6.1 millimoles per litre. Insulin is a hormone produced by the beta cells in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas. It's an anabolic hormone which is a building hormone. Insulin acts to reduce blood sugar levels in two ways. Firstly, it causes the cells in the body to absorb glucose from the blood and use that glucose as fuel. Secondly, insulin causes muscle and liver cells to absorb glucose from the blood and store it as glycogen in a process called glycogenesis. Insulin is essential in enabling cells to take glucose out of the blood and use it as fuel. Without insulin, cells cannot take up and use the glucose. Insulin is always present in small amounts and then increases when the blood sugar level rises. Glucagon is a hormone produced by the alpha cells in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas. Glucagon is a catabolic hormone which means it's a breakdown hormone. It's released in response to low blood sugar levels and stress and it works to increase the blood sugar levels. Glucagon tells the liver to break down stored glycogen and release it into the blood as glucose and this is a process called glycogenolysis. It also tells the liver to convert proteins and fats into glucose in a process called gluconeogenesis. Next let's talk about ketones. Ketogenesis, which is the production of ketones, occurs when there is insufficient glucose supply and the glycogen stores are exhausted, such as in prolonged fasting. 
The liver takes fatty acids and converts them into ketones. Ketones are water-soluble fatty acids that can be used as a fuel. They can cross the blood-brain barrier and they can be used by the brain. Producing ketones is normal and not harmful in healthy patients under fasting conditions or on very low-carbohydrate, high-fat diets. Ketones can be measured in the urine with a dipstick test and they can be measured in the blood using a ketone meter. People who are in ketosis, meaning they're creating ketones, have a characteristic acetone smell to their breath. The kidneys buffer ketone acids or ketones in healthy people, so the blood does not become acidotic. When type 1 diabetes causes extreme hyperglycemic ketosis, meaning there's a high level of glucose in the blood as well as ketones, this results in a life-threatening metabolic acidosis. The kidneys cannot keep up with all the ketone acids circulating. This is called diabetic ketoacidosis. So let's talk in more detail about the pathophysiology of diabetic ketoacidosis. Diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, occurs as a consequence of inadequate insulin. The most common scenarios for DKA to occur are the initial presentation of type 1 diabetes, an existing type 1 diabetic who is unwell for another reason, often with an infection, or an existing type 1 diabetic who is not adhering to their insulin regime. The three key features are ketoacidosis, dehydration and potassium imbalance. Let's start by talking about ketoacidosis. Without insulin, the body cells cannot recognize glucose even when there's plenty of glucose in the blood, so the liver starts to produce ketones to use as a fuel. Over time, there are higher and higher glucose and ketone levels. Initially, the kidneys produce bicarbonate to counteract the ketone acids in the blood and maintain a normal pH. Over time, the ketone acids use up the bicarbonate and the blood becomes acidotic. This is called ketoacidosis. Next, let's talk about the dehydration. High blood glucose levels, or hyperglycemia, overwhelm the kidneys and glucose leaks into the urine. The glucose in the urine draws water out by osmotic diuresis. This causes increased urine production, or polyuria, and results in severe dehydration. Dehydration results in excessive thirst, or polydipsia. Finally, the potassium imbalance. Insulin normally drives potassium into cells. Without insulin, potassium is not added to and stored inside cells. In diabetic ketoacidosis, the serum potassium level, the potassium level in the blood, can be high or normal as the kidneys balance blood potassium with the potassium excreted in the urine. However, the total body potassium is low because no potassium is stored in the cells. When treatment with insulin starts, patients can develop severe hypokalemia or low serum potassium very quickly leading to fatal arrhythmias, meaning abnormal heart rhythms. 
Next, let's talk about the presentation of diabetic ketoacidosis. The pathophysiology that we've just described leads to hyperglycemia or a high glucose level, dehydration, ketosis, a metabolic acidosis with a low bicarbonate, and potassium imbalance. Patients present with symptoms of these abnormalities with polyuria or lots of urine production, polydipsia or excessive thirst, nausea and vomiting, an acetone smell to their breath, dehydration, weight loss, hypotension or a low blood pressure, and altered consciousness. Diabetic ketoacidosis may be triggered by an underlying condition, such as an infection. In any patient with DKA, it's also important to look for signs of infections and other underlying pathology that may need treating. Next, let's talk about diagnosing diabetic ketoacidosis. Always check the local diabetic ketoacidosis diagnostic criteria for your hospital. A diagnosis requires all three of hyperglycemia, for example, a blood glucose level above 11 millimoles per litre, ketoacidosis, for example, a blood ketone level above 3 millimoles per litre, and acidosis, for example, a pH below 7.3 on a blood gas analysis. Next, let's talk about the treatment of diabetic ketoacidosis. The most dangerous aspects of DKA are dehydration, potassium imbalance, and acidosis. These are what will kill the patient. Therefore, the priority is fluid resuscitation to correct the dehydration, the electrolyte imbalances, and the acidosis. Fluid resuscitation is followed by an insulin infusion to get the cells to start taking up and using glucose and stop producing ketones. Diabetic ketoacidosis is a life-threatening medical emergency. So get experienced senior support and follow local protocols when you're treating patients. Local policies will dictate precisely what fluids and insulin to prescribe. The principles of management can be remembered with the FIG-PIC mnemonic. F for fluids, indicating IV fluid resuscitation with normal saline, for example 1 litre in the first hour followed by 1 litre every 2 hours. I for insulin, referring to a fixed-rate insulin infusion, for example, act rapid at 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. G for glucose, referring to closely monitoring the blood glucose and adding a glucose infusion when the blood glucose gets to less than 14 millimoles per litre. P for potassium, adding potassium to the IV fluids and monitoring the potassium closely, for example, every hour initially. I for infection, treating underlying triggers such as infections. C for chart the fluid balance. And K for ketones, monitoring the blood ketones, pH, and the bicarbonate. Before stopping the insulin and the fluid infusions, ketones and acidosis should have resolved the patient should be eating and drinking normally and they should have started their regular subcutaneous insulin. 
The key complications during treatment for diabetic ketoacidosis are hypoglycemia or a low blood sugar level, hypokalemia or a low potassium level, cerebral edema or swelling in the brain, and this particularly occurs in children, and pulmonary edema, secondary to fluid overload or acute respiratory distress syndrome. A tum tip for you, remember under normal circumstances the rate of potassium infusion should not exceed 10 millimoles per hour as there's a risk of inducing an arrhythmia or cardiac arrest. In the treatment of diabetic ketoacidosis, rates up to 20 millimoles per hour may be used. Higher rates are only used in specific scenarios under expert supervision with cardiac monitoring and through a central line rather than a peripheral cannula. Next let's talk about autoantibodies and serum C protein. Checking for autoantibodies and serum C protein is not routinely recommended, but they can be helpful when there's doubt about whether a patient has type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Autoantibodies in type 1 diabetes are anti-islet cell antibodies, anti-GAD antibodies and anti-insulin antibodies. Serum C-peptide is a measure of insulin production. It's low with low insulin production and high with high insulin production. In type 1 diabetes you would expect a low serum C protein. Next let's talk about the long-term management of type 1 diabetes. Monitoring and treatment of type 1 diabetes is relatively complex. Therefore, patient education is essential. Type 1 diabetes is a lifelong condition and requires the patient to understand and engage with their condition fully. Treatment involves subcutaneous insulin, monitoring the dietary carbohydrate intake, monitoring the blood sugar levels on waking at each meal and before bed, and monitoring for and managing the complications both short-term and long-term complications. Let's talk about a basal bolus regime. A basal bolus regime of insulin involves a combination of background long-acting insulin, typically injected once a day, and short-acting insulin injected 30 minutes before consuming carbohydrates, for example at meals. Injecting into the same spot can cause lipodystrophy where the subcutaneous fat hardens. Areas of lipodystrophy do not absorb insulin properly from further injections. For this reason, patients should cycle their injection sites, injecting into different areas each time. If a patient is not responding to insulin as expected, ask where they inject and check that area for lipodystrophy. Next let's talk about insulin pumps. Insulin pumps are small devices that continuously infuse insulin at different rates to control the blood sugar levels. They are an alternative to the basal bolus regime. The pump pushes insulin through a small plastic tube called a cannula inserted under the skin. 
The cannula is replaced every two to three days and the insertion sites are rotated to prevent lipodystrophy and absorption issues. The advantages of an insulin pump are better blood glucose control, more flexibility with eating and less injections. The disadvantages are difficulties learning to use the pump, having the pump attached at all times, blockages in the infusion set and a small risk of infection. Tethered pumps are separate devices with replaceable infusion sets and insulin. They usually attach to the patient's belt or around the waist with a tube connecting the pump to the insertion site. The controls for the infusion are on the pump itself. Patch pumps sit directly on the skin without any visible tubes. When they run out of insulin, the entire patch pump is disposed of and a new pump is attached. The patch pumps are controlled by a separate remote as opposed to tethered pumps which have controls on the pump itself. Next let's talk about pancreas transplants. A pancreas transplant involves implanting a donor pancreas to produce insulin. The original pancreas is left in place to continue producing digestive enzymes. The procedure carries significant risks and lifelong immunosuppression is required to prevent rejection. Therefore, it's reserved for patients with severe hypoglycemic episodes and those also having kidney transplants. Islet transplantation involves inserting donor islet cells into the patient's liver. These islet cells produce insulin and they help with managing the patient's diabetes. However, patients often still need insulin therapy after an islet transplantation. Next, let's talk about monitoring. The HbA1c measures glycated hemoglobin, which is how much glucose is attached to the hemoglobin molecule. This reflects the average glucose level over the previous two to three months. The red blood cells which contain the haemoglobin molecules have a lifespan of about four months. HbA1c is measured every three to six months to track the average glucose levels over that period. It's a laboratory test so blood needs to be sent off to the lab. The capillary blood glucose or finger prick test can be measured using a blood glucose monitor and it gives an immediate result. Patients with type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetics on insulin rely on these machines for self-monitoring of their glucose level. Flash glucose monitors, for example Freestyle Libra 2, use a sensor that's placed on the skin and measures the blood glucose level of the interstitial fluid in the subcutaneous tissue. There's a 5-minute lag of the interstitial fluid glucose behind the blood glucose. The sensor will record the glucose readings at short intervals, so you get an excellent impression of what the glucose levels are doing over time. The user needs to use their mobile phone to swipe over the sensor and collect the reading. Sensors need to be replaced every two weeks for the Freestyle Libra system. The five-minute delay behind the blood glucose levels means that it's necessary to do capillary blood glucose testing if hypoglycemia is suspected, 
So if the patient's suspected of having a low glucose level, they need a capillary blood glucose test because the level on the glucose monitor represents the blood glucose level from 5 minutes ago, which may not yet have changed. Continuous glucose monitors are similar to the flash glucose monitors in that the sensor on the skin monitors the sugar level in the interstitial fluid. However, continuous glucose monitors send the readings over Bluetooth and do not require the patient to scan the sensor. Let's talk about the closed loop system. A closed loop system, also called an artificial pancreas, involves a combination of a continuous glucose monitor and an insulin pump. The devices communicate to automatically adjust the insulin based on the glucose readings. Patients will still need to input their carbohydrate intake and adjust the system to account for strenuous exercise. However, this frees the patient from constantly adjusting their insulin levels as it's done automatically by the closed-loop system. Next, let's talk about the short-term complications. Short-term complications relate to immediate insulin and blood glucose management with hypoglycemia, or a low blood sugar level, and hyperglycemia, which is a high blood sugar level, as well as diabetic ketoacidosis. Hypoglycemia is a low blood sugar level. This is caused by too much insulin, not consuming enough carbohydrates, or not processing the carbohydrates correctly, for example in malabsorption, diarrhea or vomiting. Most patients are aware when they become hypoglycemic by their symptoms. However, some patients can be unaware until they're severely hypoglycemic. Typical symptoms of hypoglycemia are hunger, tremor, sweating, irritability, dizziness and pallor, turning pale. More severe hypoglycemia will lead to reduced consciousness, coma, and eventually death if not treated. Hypoglycemia needs to be treated initially with rapid-acting glucose, for example a high-sugar content drink. Once the glucose level improves, they consume slower-acting carbohydrates, for example biscuits or toast, to prevent the glucose level from dropping again. Options for treating severe hypoglycemia are intravenous dextrose and intramuscular glucagon. Remember that glucagon stimulates the patient's liver to produce glucose. Hyperglycemia is a high blood sugar level. Hyperglycemia without diabetic ketoacidosis may indicate that the insulin dose needs to be increased. Short episodes of hyperglycemia do not necessarily require treatment. Insulin injections can take several hours to take effect and repeated doses could lead to hypoglycemia. It's essential to exclude diabetic ketoacidosis by checking the ketone levels. Patients meeting the criteria for diabetic ketoacidosis need admission to hospital for inpatient management. Next let's talk about the long-term complications. Chronic high blood sugar levels causes damage to the endothelial cells of the blood vessels. This leads to leaky, malfunctioning blood vessels that are unable to regenerate. 
High glucose levels also cause immune system dysfunction and create an optimal environment for infectious organisms to thrive. Therefore, the patient is more likely to develop infections. Macrovascular complications include coronary artery disease, which is a significant cause of death in diabetics, peripheral ischemia, causing poor skin healing and diabetic foot ulcers, stroke, and hypertension or high blood pressure. Microvascular complications include peripheral neuropathy, retinopathy in the back of the eye, and kidney disease, particularly glomerulosclerosis. Infection-related complications include urinary tract infections, pneumonia, skin and soft tissue infections, particularly in the feet, and fungal infections particularly oral and vaginal candidiasis, or thrush. So thanks for listening to this very long episode on type 1 diabetes. As always, a big thank you to Harry Watchman for perfectly editing the podcast. If you find this podcast helpful, consider joining the Zero to Finals Patreon at patreon.com slash zero to finals, and you'll get early access to the podcast episodes, early access to the YouTube videos, as well as access to the digital flashcards and question bank. And I hope you join us for the next episode where we'll tackle type 2 diabetes.